0: Have you ever wanted to hear more about deities worshipped in Nigerian religions or black vampires dwelling amongst Americans? Or how about those mermaids in Trinidad and Tobago? If so, check out By the Fire podcast where I, Ken, your host, explore tales of mythical creatures and folklore from across the black diaspora. Join me every two weeks where I review black horror media, hear insights from a variety of guest speakers, and be amazed at the vast archive of tales passed down from generation to generation. Check out ByTheFirePodcast.com for more information, and subscribe to the newsletter so you never miss an episode. I look forward to you joining me by the fire. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we analyzed the beginning of the harrowing Ashanti civil wars of 1884 through 1888, when the brutal destruction of the family and allies of Kofi Kakri, followed by the unexpected passing of the new Ashantahene Kwakojola II, caused a complete collapse in centralized Ashanti authority. For a four-year period, there truly was no Ashanti state. Ashantiman was divided among dozens of warring Omanhenes and a united imperial government existed only in the aspirations of powerful lords and the imaginations of Kumasi bureaucrats. However, all of that is about to change. In 1888, a new claimant will arise, reunify Ashanti Manso, and put an end to the civil war. He is the last independent king of Ashanti Man that we will meet in this series. Nana Adjaman Prempa the First. Season 3, Episode 28, Prempa, The Last Independent King of Ashanti. Before 1888, devastating war raged unabated throughout Ashantimun. Omanhenes fought Omanhenes. Tributaries rebelled against the Golden Stool. Thousands were killed, and hundreds of thousands more were displaced. There was only one thing that could bring an end to this brutal fighting, and that was the election of a new Ashantahene. However, the previous king, the short-lived Kwakojoa II, ensured that this would never happen. The late king's decision to lure his enemies to Komasi before massacring them in totality ensured that nobody of import was willing to risk traveling to Komasi to elect a new king. No matter what promises of safety the Ya Ya'achia made, they were met with skeptical scoffs. Many, perhaps rightly, noted that the queen may have been involved with, or even been the mastermind behind the massacre of Kakri's supporters. So, who's to say that she wasn't pulling the same trick again? Their condition? A guarantee of safety from an ostensibly neutral party. In this case, the British. If a British ambassador was present at the called election, that could give some confidence in their safety to the convened in Safohene and Omanhene. That way, if anyone tried something, they would be risking providing their enemies with British backing in the ensuing conflict. But, this wasn't going to happen. The British colonial official who had served as the ambassador to Mon had just ended his term in service in 1884, right before the Civil War broke out, and his replacement wouldn't arrive until two years later. So the Ashantahema was forced to patiently wait for a British ambassador to arrive in Ghana as her country continued to be torn apart. But even when 1886 arrived and the British representative was made available, the ability of Ya'acha to elect a new Ashantahene was still not clear. Even if an official election was conducted, it was unlikely that anyone would respect the results. While pretty much everyone ostensibly wanted a return to peace and order, who would be the person to return the Ashanti kingdom to a state of peace and order was perhaps the more important question. If the wrong faction returned to power, that could result in any given Omanhene losing his position, or Nsafuhene losing his job, and potentially, in both cases, their lives. So, when Ya'acha called the Ashanti-Manshamu to elect a new king of Ashanti, only a pittance of the people of note in the country actually, like, showed up. The election itself was a dispute between two candidates of note. The elder candidate was the cousin of Ya'acha, a 30-something old man named Achwereboa. Achwereboa was, from the very beginning, not a very attractive candidate to the Golden Stool. He was a notorious binge-drinker and sexual philanderer. He was also, to some extent, physically disabled. His neck was inflicted with some kind of either chronic illness or childhood injury that had severely weakened his nervous system. As a result, he often struggled even to walk without assistance, an image very unbecoming of a man who should, in theory, embody the strength and vigor of the Ashanti state. The other candidate was Ya'acha's son, Prempa, or as he was known at the time, Kwako Joa III. He actually wouldn't officially change his name to Prempa until well after his installment, but since that's the most recognizable name by which he's been labeled in history, I'm just gonna call him Prempa, even now. Prempa had lived much of his life in the shadow of his elder brother, but even then had managed to carve out a fairly positive reputation for himself. Prempa had lived most of his life in the shadow of his elder brother, the ill-fated Kwakojoa II, but even in his brother's shadow, he had managed to carve out a fairly positive reputation for himself. The prince was athletic, charismatic, and polite, a proverbial straight arrow. In fact, Prempa was already somewhat of a celebrity throughout Ashantiman, not for anything political, but for his famous hunting prowess. Even high-ranking members of the royal family and famous Omanhenes courted the young man to try to accompany them on hunting journeys. He was also known for his good looks. Young Prempa had a famously pretty face, and yes, I did call his face pretty for a reason. He was noted for possessing a very feminine look, but in a good way. Given his attractive looks and likable personality, you have to speculate on if these Omanhenes were only inviting Prempa on their trips to hunt. When you consider his famous good looks and charming personality, you have to wonder if some of these Omanhenes had something else in mind when they invited the teenager on hunting trips. Given his likability and popularity, you'd expect that Prempa would be the easy choice over his grumpy, perverted, and disabled rival. But there were two things standing in his way. For starters, Prempa was only 15. While Ashanti Haines had been appointed at such a young age before, and Prempa certainly did have a reputation for maturity beyond his years his age was still very much a factor working against him. The youngest Ashantahene in history, Opokuware, had also been appointed around 15, and this had only happened due to very, very extraordinary circumstances. Don't get me wrong, Prempa would also be elected in extraordinary circumstances, but just saying. So, while electing a 15-year-old was precedented, it was still a tall order for some people. The other factor working against the young prince was his skin tone. You see, at least by the standards of Ashanti society, Prempa possessed an unusually fair complexion. Now, colorism was certainly a thing in Akan society, but as we've seen earlier on the show, specifically our episodes on Osei Akoto, the most virulent strain of colorism in Ashantiman was directed at people who were perceived as having a reddish skin tone. This difference in skin tone was sometimes the result of skin conditions, as was the case for Osei Aakoto, but it could also be sometimes due to more subtle differences in skin tone that people were just born with. When it came to individuals with relatively light skin tones, this prejudice was much less pronounced in everyday life. Take, for example, the most extreme example of light complexion possible, albinism. People often stereotype Africans as having strange attitudes towards albinos, and, well, there is some truth to that. In some parts of Africa, and even parts of Ghana, this prejudice persists to this day. Comparatively, though, Akan society has been pretty tolerant of albinos. Albinos have always featured prominently in the Akan religion, including being placed under the protection of a patron spirit. Additionally, the Okonfo Anoche, the most revered religious leader in Ashanti history, is often portrayed as an albino in oral histories, though the historical veracity of this depiction is uh, debatable. Regardless, Prince Prempa was not himself an albino. Nor, by Western standards, was he particularly light-skinned at all. He was just a little bit lighter than the average Ashanti. In ordinary life, this was no big deal. But when it came to election to the Golden Stool, it was everything. Supposedly, there existed a prophecy uttered by the ever-holy Akonfo Anoche himself. The prophecy stated that, should a light-skinned man ever become Ashantihene, that the kingdom would be led to ruin. Now, it is very possible that, like many of the apocryphal sayings attributed to the Akonful, a conveniently manufactured excuse by the prince's political enemy to oppose his rise to the Golden Stool. But, authentic or not, the prophecy made some of the Ashanti Manhyamu hesitate when thinking about casting their vote for Prempa. I mean, the kingdom already seemed to be heading towards ruin anyway. The last thing we need to do now is invoke a destructive prophecy. Even with these factors working against him, though, Prempa's superiority as a candidate was insurmountable. Sure, you can bring up all the concerns about age and skin-tone-related prophecies if you want, but when given the choice between a perverted drunk and an athletic, charismatic, intelligent, and handsome young man like Prempa, the majority chose the latter. However, at this point in Ashanti history, victory in an election is far from sufficient to actually guarantee the young Prempa true control over Ashantiman. Yes, a small gathering of Omanhene and Safo Hene had declared him king, but what about all the Omanhene who had decided not to attend his election? When messengers were sent out from Komasi that demanded that the absent Omanhenes must return to the city and yield to Prempa's authority, nobody heeded the call. Rather than Ashanti Hene, it is better to think of Prempa as the official mascot of the Komasi warlord clique at this time one of many warlord cliques, of which his father, Owosu Koko, represented the true power. Even though Komasi had fallen far as a city since its glory days, the city was still the largest and most economically important in the region, largely because all of its old rivals had been destroyed to varying degrees during the Civil War. Owosu Koko's military clique that ran the city was the wealthiest and most powerful clique in Ashantiman, albeit not powerful enough to take on all the other warring factions on its own. So, to help him in his task of uniting Mon under his son's authority, Oosukoku made an ally, the Bekwaihene, a man named Ya Jiamfe. While the city of Bekwai had itself been devastated by multiple attacks by rival Omanhene factions, Djamfe still commanded what was the second most powerful military clique in Mon. Bekwai and Kumasi, you might remember, had been mostly aligned since the death of Kwakojoa II. Owosu Koko and his allies in Kumasi had sent soldiers to support Bekwai during its wars against Adansi, and in return, the Bekwaihene had played an important role in overseeing the Ashantihene election and guaranteeing a peaceful election by escorting British ambassadors to Kumasi. But do not mistake alliance for friendship, as the alliance between Bekwai and Kumasi was entirely out of convenience. Behind closed doors, the Bekwaihene was transparent about his true desires. In correspondence with British merchants, Jamfe made it clear that he himself had ambitions for the Golden Stool. In one letter, the Bekwahene went so far to declare that he wanted these British officials to treat him as the Ashantihene, because he presumed that as leader of one of the most powerful armies in Ashantiman, he might as well be already. For now, though, the Bekwahene curtailed his ambitions, and publicly aligned with the Wosukoko in support of the young Prince Prempa. There were more pressing matters to deal with for now. While most of the Komasi bureaucrats had chosen to pledge their support to Prempa, the faction supporting his arrival, Achuereboa, were not willing to go down without a fight. In early 1887, a group of Nsafo who opposed the election of young Prince Prempa united behind the army of the Giasse or Minister of Finance. This sub-faction from within the Komasi clique broke away and united with a pair of opportunistic Oman Hene in the countryside. This coalition demanded the immediate elevation of Achuereboana to the Golden Stool. The combined forces of this pro-Achuereboana coalition were large enough to pose a threat to both Owosu Koko and Djampe, so the two factions united for battle. The Jasehenes forces attempted to march on the city of Komasi, but were thwarted by the combined armies of Djampe and Koko. During the battle, the Jasahene was captured, and Achuere Buana was forced to flee. The duo of opportunistic Omanhene's were never really that committed to raising Achuere to the Golden Stool in the first place, and mostly just saw the battle as an opportunity to weaken Jean-Fan So, they abandoned the fight quickly, retreating before they received any serious injury. With this major threat abated, however, the Bekwahene now knew that Owosu Koko and his son Prempa were now indisputably the greatest threat to his stoolward ambitions. Knowing that he had to do something fast before Koko could consolidate his power over the other Omanhenes, Gianfei decided to put on a little ruse. He decided that, under the auspices of a desire of peace, he would host a summit at Bekwai. There, the Omanhenes of Ashanteman could discuss their thoughts on the election of Prempa, and see if some kind of deal could be reached to restore their subservient position to the king. The summit took place and was, unsurprisingly, unproductive. But just before the meeting could come to a close, its true purpose was revealed. As Uosu Koko and a crowd of men, including the imprisoned Jasehene, were riding a palanquin back to Komasi, a squad of assassins serving the Bekwahene fell upon them. The men, including Koko himself, were murdered. Jianfe had hoped that by killing Koko, he would secure his status as the leader of the most powerful faction, in Ashantiman. After all, the Komasi clique was not loyal to Prempa. They were loyal to Koko. He had chopped off the head of the snake, and now the body would surely flounder. And it went according to plan. Jumfe was now the most powerful warlord in Ashantiman. Though he would learn to be careful what he wished for. By killing Koko, Jianfei had made sure that any sort of positive relationship he had with Komasi evaporated instantly. In a sense, all that this stunt had really achieved for Jiangfei was that it made him a lot of enemies. Forced into an alliance of convenience to crush Bekwai, even the armies of Komasi and Kokofu one of the rebellious states that had supported the Jasahane's uprising, put their dispute aside and came together to crush Bekwai. As the combined armies of Kokofo and Komasi marched on Bekwai, Diamfei's other enemies rose up. Besieged from all angles and fighting a war on dozens of fronts, Diamfei was slain, his armies were destroyed, and the already ruined Bekwai was sacked for a second time. This anti-Bekwai alliance wouldn't last long either, though. Prempa had never forgotten that the Kokofu Hene had opposed his rise to the stool, and so Prempa enlisted another rival Omanhene, and with their combined forces, they crushed Kokofu. And I don't just mean its army or its Omanhene. Apparently, by the end of the fighting, the once flourishing town of Kokofu, one of the more important Ashanti cities in the 19th century, was reduced from a population in the thousands to a population of 30. Yes, 30 people, about the size of a large classroom. So, yeah, I get that all this politicking and Game of Thrones-esque shifting of alliances can be confusing. So, let's just get straight to the point of it all. The important takeaway here is that by the end of 1887, the Ashanti Kingdom was still in a state of chaotic warfare where alliances rarely lasted long, and important cities were wiped off a map like it was nothing. However, these wars were perhaps not as much of a fruitless and unproductive squabble as it seems. The destruction of the Bequai alliance had allowed Prempa to appoint a new, loyal subject to fill the position. With Bequai secure under the rule of a puppet, Prempa now held de facto control over most of southern Shanteman. The utter destruction of Kokofo had also ensured that the Ashantahene's main domestic adversary was severely weakened. As a result, power was consolidating in Komasi, behind Prempa. The gap in power between Prempa and the rebel Omanhenes was quickly becoming apparent. Another big victory for Prempa came at the end of the year when the long-hidden rival claim in Achuere Boana was discovered and captured. Prempa did not make the same mistake as his older brother, though. Achuere Boana was spared, and allowed to flee into exile in the British territories in southern Ghana. Keep him in mind, though, we haven't seen the last of him. With his chief rival gone, at long last, there was a clear, undisputed favorite for the position of Ashantahene. While Prempa had been officially elected as Ashantahene, he had actually yet to undergo official installments. His mother, Acha, had feared that instooling her son during a period of such discord and unrest would only be a provocative move that would make things worse. But with Achuereboana in exile, and the majority of Omanhenes cowed, Acha was finally confident enough to officially instool her son in March of 1888. The vast majority of Omanhenes, recognizing which way the wind was blowing, traveled to Komasi to pledge fealty to the new Ashantehenne. The last major holdout of rebellion was the city of Mampong the last major Kotoko city that had remained largely unharmed by the previous decades of violence. When the Mampong continued to steadfastly refuse to recognize Prempa as his liege, Prempa sent an army to demand subservience. Unwielding in his recalcitrance, the Mampong raised an army of his own, and, after being defeated in battle fled north to the small village of Atebobo, where they would maintain an ongoing, but largely ineffective, guerrilla war until the end of his life. The city of Mompong, on the other hand, was brutally sacked, and a new puppet king was appointed. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, Listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, there were none. All four of the major Kotoko cities were now, to one degree or another ruined by war. With his final adversary forced into submission, Prempa received the name that would stick with him for the rest of his life. Remember that at this point, everyone was still calling him by his birth name, Kwako Joa III. But with the defeat of the Mampongheni, and the final, long-desired reunion of Ashantiman, the Ashantahene received a new nickname, Ajiman Prempa, a very humble title roughly translating in Shui to Heroic Savior of the Nation. But I mean, he had earned it. For the first time in, really, five or more years, Ashantiman had an actual government that everyone more or less recognized. And perhaps more importantly, the country was at peace. Life in the country could carry on. You didn't need to worry that an army would suddenly burst into your town and destroy your way of life. Things were, for the first time in a while, genuinely looking up. So now that we finally have an actual Ashanti government again, we once again get to talk about government policy. And when it came to work to do, the Prempa administration was not lacking. While Prempa and his supporters had reunited Ashantiman, they had reunited a poor, war torn, and utterly exhausted Ashantiman. The empire of Osequajo, Kwakojoa, and even Mansabonso, this was not. The first priority of the heroic savior of the nation was to repair his country's economy. The Ashanti Kingdom's finances were an absolute joke by this point. They were so bad that the Ashanti Haney actually had to take out a loan to fund his installment ceremony from the British. And even when relatively efficient tax collection resumed, the Ashanti economy was simply too poor to adequately fund the state. Even without considering the immense costs and horrible damage inflicted to the economy by the Civil War, which is a big give, Ashantiman was still in a challenging economic quagmire. In the near century since the decline of the international slave trade, the Ashanti economy had successfully readjusted and retuned itself during the rule of Kwakojoa, extracting wealth from the production of the trade of gold, kola nuts, and domestically produced finished products as well as the resale of European finished goods into inland regions of West Africa. The civil unrest and later civil wars had severely damaged many of these industries. The largest hub of the kola nut trade, Jwaben, was destroyed during the 1875 rebellion, which dramatically crippled the Ashanti ability to export kola nuts to interior West Africa. In terms of the gold trade, the most profitable gold-producing region, Adansiman, had also been largely destroyed, this time by the 1884 invasion of the Bekwahenei. Meanwhile, the ongoing French, British, and German penetration deeper into West Africa was undermining the Ashanti ability to make a profit as middlemen in European trade with the continent. We'll get back on that theme in just a little bit. So, if the Ashanti economy was going to get back on track, it could no longer rely on its old pillar industries. Something would have to change. To kickstart his country's economic revival, Prempa encouraged the growth of three major industries in Ashantiman, even taking out British loans to fund their development. These were the trade in rubber, cocoa, and coffee. Perhaps the most interesting of these industries was also that which would prove the least successful, coffee. You see, Ghana was actually already home to a species of native-grown coffee plant. Known as Coffea Robusta, this type of coffee was quite distinct from its more famous cousin, Coffee Arabica. The Coffea Robusta plant offered many advantages over its eastern cousin, including higher caffeine content, higher resilience to pests, and faster cultivation cycles. Basically, Coffea Robusta gave you more bang for your buck, growing faster and offering a more potent pick-me-up, but it also featured a lower sugar and fat content which, yes, made it healthier, but also gave it a more bitter, rubbery taste compared to Coffea arabica. Coffea robusta had already been harvested in Ashantiman since the 18th century at the latest, as the plant was popular as a chewed stimulant and medical ingredient among the Ashanti. However, it had never really been grown in large quantities, or with the intention of export. This is what Prempa intended to change. During Prempa's rule, several major private coffee plantations were set up throughout Ashantiman with state encouragement, and these plantations would enjoy some early, moderate success. But, compared to the other industries that we'll get into later, coffee was a relative failure. The big problem was competition. By the time that Prempa had encouraged the opening of these coffee plantations, Coffea Robusta was already a global phenomenon. The Dutch cultivated and exported thousands of tons of the product every year in Indonesia. French firms cultivated the product in high quantities in Vietnam, French Guiana, and several islands in the Indian Ocean. While British plantations exported the bean from India and Sierra Leone. But most importantly, the coffee industry titan of Brazil was absolutely dominant exporting nearly a quarter of the world's supply of Cofea Robusta. Basically, coffee was a crowded market. Ashanti firms were only able to gain a minor competitive advantage with their comparatively small labor costs. Since the debt relief programs of Kwaku Joa and later Mensa Bonso had long since gone by the wayside, debt penage had revived as a widespread practice. The problem was that selling at a lower price to undercut competition means that you're, well, selling at a lower price. These plantations produced stable, but also meager and unimpressive profits. The legacy of limited success of these ventures can still be seen in modern Ghana. Even as coffee production has skyrocketed across Africa, Ghana remains on the lower end of production among coffee-exporting countries. An industry that enjoyed considerably more success was that of rubber. Similarly to coffee, there was a species of rubber tree, Funtumia elastica, indigenous to West Africa. And, again, like coffee... Rubber had long been a niche industry in Ashantiman, primarily in its use in medicine. The tree's sap features antibacterial and anti-inflammatory properties, and the crushed up bark of the plant was often used as an antibiotic and sanitization agent among the Akan. While the coffee industry was small in Ashantiman, the rubber tree was grown for the purpose of exportation, though the scale of rubber plantations in Ashantiman were pretty small compared to their neighbors in Xiaoman, who dominated the trade. The industry exploded in size in 1882. Fueled by the increasing demand for industrial machines, European companies demanded ever-increasing quantities of rubber. That year, to meet their growing demand, the British colonial government in the Gold Coast began promoting not only the creation of rubber-tapping plantations, but also announced that they would begin buying rubber at marked-up prices from local merchants. To capitalize on the sudden upsurge in prices, many of these local merchants traveled north into Jaman in order to purchase rubber. Sensing an opportunity, Prampa sought to integrate the Ashanti into this newly lucrative trade. With a great deal of state support, rubber plantations rapidly rose throughout Ashantiman. And I mean, rapidly. In 1893, around 3,000 pounds of rubber were exported from Ashantiman to Cape Coast. Two years later, that figure was more than 2.4 million pounds, an astonishing increase of more than 800 times. However, these rubber plantations, though profitable, would ultimately see their success overshadowed by the far greater success of the final industry that arrived in Ashantiman during Prempa's rule. Unlike rubber and coffee, cocoa was a product with no indigenous history in West Africa. The crop came from across the Atlantic, originally domesticated in Mesoamerica, where the native people consumed the drink as a beverage. By the end of the 16th century, The Spaniards had introduced cocoa to Europe, where it was popular as a relatively niche drink. However, it wasn't until the mid-to-late 19th century when its popularity really started to take off. A Swiss entrepreneur combined cocoa with milk and hardened it into an edible, solid snack, marking the beginning of modern chocolate. Due to the relatively niche nature of cocoa before then, the explosion of chocolate's popularity caught Europe in short supply of the treasured beans. Really the only countries that had shown any effort in cultivating that niche crop in large quantities were the Portuguese and Brazilians. Brazilians, of course, grew chocolate in Brazil. The Portuguese cultivated large quantities of chocolate in a group of islands off the coast of West Africa including Sao Tome, Principe, and Fernando Po. The man who would bring Coco to Ghana was a Ga-man named Tete Quarci. Quarci was a blacksmith who had worked for the Swiss missionary organization, the Basel Missionaries, who always seemed to find a way to sneak into every episode. Anyways, at one point, the missionaries took a trip to Fernando Po, and brought Quarci with them. He returned to his hometown in the Aquapim region, with some beans he had acquired in Fernando Po and began operating a small farm. Soon, he found a great deal of success, and his farm had expanded into a series of plantations. Other entrepreneurs in southern Ghana followed suit, finding their own success due to the low cost of entry of acquiring cocoa, and the fact that Ghana happened to have a perfect climate for growing the substance. Soon, Ashanti merchants from up north had caught wind of the profitable new product. Throughout the 1880s and 1890s, the cocoa industry rapidly developed in Ashantiman, rising to even surpass gold as Ashantiman's most economically valuable commodity. Under the reign of Prempa, Ashantiman underwent a period of unprecedented economic growth. Prempa's policy of state support for domestic capitalistic enterprises was paying dividends, but the success came at a high cost. Keep in mind that while Prempa was finding success in improving his nation's economy, he was doing so almost entirely on the back of British credit. In addition to owing the British outstanding war debts that he had inherited from previous Ashanti Haines, Prempa was going into pretty deep debt to fund his economic rejuvenation. The state often provided Ashanti capitalists with the initial money to kickstart their enterprises, and this initial money was largely coming from British lenders. Was it still a smart strategy? I'd say yes. It's not unusual for countries to go into debt for long-term investments like this, but just keep it in mind as British debt will become a major theme in the late rule of Prempa. The Shantahene coupled the rise of these new industries with several other domestic reforms, that sought to radically alter the country's political and social institutions. The king's ideology seemed to be cut from the same cloth as the ever-influential reformist thinker Obosuansa. And that's not too much of a surprise, considering that one of Prempa's top advisors was the great reformer's son, Owosu-Ansa Jr. If you are interested in learning more about Owosu-Ansa, his family, and how he came to abandon his allegiance to the British and reorient his life in service of the Ashanti Empire, we're concluding our three-part series on the life of Prince Owosu-Ansa on Patreon. So, if you want to listen to this trilogy, or our collection of almost 50 premium episodes, or if you just want to support the show and the free education we provide, then help us out at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. And to those already supporting us, thank you. Unlike Mensa Bonso, though, Prempa was no reluctant ally of the Anza family, but an active supporter of their reformist ideology. Under Prempa, many of the more ambitious reforms that Anza had proposed back in the 1870s, he reinitiated the process of setting up western-styled schools and invited missionaries to staff the institutions. But, more shockingly, the king achieved something that none of his predecessors had ever done before. He outright abolished the death penalty. Yes, since the foundation of the Ashanti Empire, the death penalty has been an ever-present motif in Ashanti civic life. Some kings had tried to minimize its presence, while some had relied on it more heavily, but nobody had actually tried to get rid of it before. But Prempa, always vigilant of his relationship with the British worried that the high volume of executions, which the British erroneously labeled as human sacrifice, would reflect poorly on his people and provide the British with a pretext towards hostility. He had also witnessed the deleterious effects that the death penalty, particularly as widely practiced by Mensa Bonso and and Kwakojo II, had on national stability, so he commuted existing executions and proclaimed that the death penalty was no longer to be a fixture of Ashanti criminal justice. Additionally, the king proved much more willing to share power than his predecessors. During Prempa's rule, the Ashanti-Manshamu, Mpanyinfo, and Kotoko Council once again found themselves in their traditionally powerful positions. Ashanti-Hene Prempa ruled as a constitutional monarch always going through the proper legal avenues for legislation and judicial decisions. Perhaps his willingness to share power is what earned Prempa enough goodwill that the more conservative Omanhenes were willing to tolerate his otherwise reformist government in exchange. Prempa's foreign policy was joined at the hip to his economic policy. It would be pointless for Prempa to encourage the growth of these new industries if the Ashanti had no one to sell them to. So, in terms of foreign policy goals, Prempa's number one concern was straightforward. ...keep the British as happy as possible while never crossing the line of undermining his own sovereignty. Prempa also possessed a strong commitment to pacifism, a trait that makes sense when you remember the bloody and dangerous times of war he grew up in. He was a strong believer in the idea of the sweet tongue, the power of deliberation. Prempa held strongly to the principle that, in all but the rarest of circumstances... Negotiation was a better way to resolve conflicts than violent confrontation. This was very different from the principles of another Ashantehane known for his pursuit of peaceful relations, Kwako Joa I. Prempa, remember, had abolished the death penalty, while Kwako Joa had handed it out like candy. It seems that, unlike with Kwako Joa, a peaceful foreign policy to Prempa was not merely a pragmatic strategy, but an extension more generally of his personal moral philosophy. However, Prempa's insistence on maintaining strictly positive relations with the British would result in some disastrous consequences for the Ashanti. You see, British foreign policy had changed a lot in the last decade and a half since we've checked in on them, and this evolution would not only have dangerous consequences for Ashantiman, but for much of the African continent. The last time we took a long look at British colonial policy was in 1874, after the conclusion of the Anglo-Ashanti War. The British had reconsolidated their hold over southern Ghana, replacing the long-standing status quo of informal rule through the Gold Coast Protectorate with formal, direct colonial rule. This was a decent encapsulation of British colonial policy in Africa throughout the 1870s and early 1880s. The British were willing to use unprecedented force to hold over existing colonies, but they weren't necessarily aiming for a forward policy of expansion. At least not yet. This was also a fair reflection of the policies of other European countries with colonial affairs in Africa at the time, namely France and Portugal. But everything changed in the year 1881. Well, this is way too deep of a topic to get into here, European policy in Africa was forever altered by the machinations of a certain king of Belgium, the infamous Leopold. A few years prior, King Leopold had arranged for exploratory missions around the Congo River in Central Africa, and had even laid out secret plans to create a major colony in inland Africa, something that had, to this point, never existed before. Leopold's machinations proved a lot less secret than he thought, and when the plan's became public, they spooked the French and Portuguese, each of whom had vested economic and political interests in Central Africa, and who began rapidly expanding their own political holdings in Central Africa to avoid losing them to Belgium. Britain also raced to secure areas peripheral to its existing colonial holdings, while newcomers to overseas colonialism, such as Italy and Germany, sought not to be excluded from the escalating colonial expansion. Fearing that these overlapping claims in Central Africa could potentially become the cause of disputes or even wars between European powers, an international conference between 14 European powers and the United States was arranged in 1884. This conference would settle certain border disputes and lay down principles on what was and wasn't considered a colony of whom. The 1884 Berlin Conference is honestly, usually overstated in its isolated impact. Often, history classes will claim that the conference officially divided up Africa into spheres of influence. In reality, the conference only focused on parts of the continent, while many of the border agreements that were actually reached at the conference were never truly enforced. But there was one product of the conference which genuinely changed history, and that was the principle of effective occupation. This principle stated that if any European country could effectively demonstrate control over part of Africa, whether through treaty or through war, it would be recognized as their sovereign territory. This principle sent the dual message to European powers that A. Any land in Africa not owned by a colonial power is up for grabs and B. If you don't take land as soon as possible, someone else will. These implications of effective occupation doctrine laid the seeds for a rapid European race to conquer and control as much territory in Africa as possible. After all, if they didn't, then one of their rival colonial powers surely would. So how does this relate to Ashanti? Well, since the Berlin Conference had only roughly delineated borders in Central Africa, West Africa remained in the European political power's eyes, free game. Remember that strange no-man's land between the Volta River and Dahomey Empire? The one that Alu Bofor had conquered for the Ashanti in 1870, and then had been lost after the Third Anglo-Ashanti War? Well, the fallout from the Third Anglo-Ashanti War had forced the Ashanti to abandon the newly conquered territories. And in 1884, the German government annexed a series of missions and trade stations on the coast of modern Togo, and began introducing so-called treaties of protection with the politically disunited local governments. France, on the other hand, aggressively asserted its influence throughout coastal West Africa. To the east, the French invaded the Daume Empire in 1890, seizing coastal territories from the kingdom before invading again and fighting a tougher, more protracted campaign to control the inland areas of Dalmé. In the regions of the modern Ivory Coast and Guinea, France sent ambassadors inland, signing treaties of submission with local kingdoms. But it would be in the northern Ivory Coast where the French faced their stiffest resistance, from the Mande Islamic cleric and military leader, Samori Touré. Samori is a figure worthy of a podcast season all his own, so I won't be able to do justice to his story here, and can only provide the minimal details necessary to provide context to this episode. Suffice it to say, I promise this will not be the last time we see him on the podcast. To summarize, Samori exploded onto the West African political scene in 1874. Then a mere general in the army of a large empire, the leader of said major empire had recently died fracturing the region into multiple warring states. Samori carved out his own little kingdom in the chaos, and would gradually prove himself to be the most capable leader. His petty kingdom gradually consolidated the states around him, to form a true empire of his own. Samori's holdings ranged from all over the modern countries of Mali, Guinea, Ghana, and the Ivory Coast. When the French first appeared in the Sahel, Samori was at first actually a powerful ally to them assisting the French in destroying some of his own rivals. But the relationship would sour later on, as French expansionist ambitions in the Sahel became more apparent it became clear that Samori was on the next of their to-conquer list. The French fought against Samori in 1884 in a long, drawn-out, and bloody conflict. The British, who were eager to halt the expansionist ambitions of their greatest colonial rival, supplied the cleric general with arms and ammunition. Samori and his armies fought hard, and even managed to score some impressive victories over the French. But, after seven years of fighting, the French settled a somewhat balanced, but mostly pro-French treaty with the general. The French success against Samori made the British colonial office very insecure about their own position in West Africa. There was a particularly potent fear that the French could support Prempa in a similar way to how the British had supported Samori, aligning and later absorbing Ashantiman and its surroundings into the French colonial empire. British merchants were particularly afraid of the economic implications of a French-influenced Ashantiman. Apart from Ashanteman and the British Gold Coast, the only major producer of coffee was the Ivory Coast Protectorate. You know, the area that the French had just taken over. If the French took over Ashantiman, then they would possess a practical monopoly over the cocoa trade. But this fear was mistaken on the part of the British. Prempa had no interest in aligning with the French, as he knew that doing so would only provoke the wrath of the British and guarantee a major war. Sure, maybe with French support, the Ashanti would stand a better chance at successfully fighting the British. But war, even if it was a victorious one, was not what Prempa wanted. In Prempa's view, the Ashanti had suffered enough in the last few decades from the disastrous civil war he had ended, so starting a new war was the last thing anyone needed. In 1893, Prempa received an even more interesting offer. Samori Touré, having recovered well from his first battle with the French, was waging a victorious campaign against the French army. In this war, Samori would actually win and take several key territories from the French. Empowered by his recent victory, Samori made an offer of an alliance to Prempa, claiming that if the two teamed up, They could potentially form a strong enough West African base of power to take on the French and, maybe later, the British. Prempa apparently took this offer quite seriously, but ultimately declined. He did not believe that the Ashanti were in a sufficiently secure position to help Samori take on the French. Nor, necessarily, would an alliance with Samori turn out positively with the Ashanti. Samori had a bit of a reputation for not being the most reliable ally and also as someone who clearly had interests in the area surrounding Ashanteman. Samori would prove this fear right two years later, when he invaded and permanently destroyed the Kingdom of Jiaman, the Ashanti's old tributary, sacking the city of Bonduku into the ground. Instead of partnering with the French or Samori, Prempa laid his bets on maintaining a positive relation with the British. The recent expansion of trade between the two seemed to indicate that relations were improving, while Prempa, known for his reformist attitude and positive relations with missionaries, was viewed in a pretty positive light by the British colonial government. But the decision to balance his nation's fate on the maintenance of positive relations with the British would ultimately prove to be a mistake, as British colonial policy was about to change forever. Even if Prempa himself was a progressive reformer, someone who the British authority thought of as a force for good, relations between the British and Ashanti were still approaching an all-time low. The problem was that the British viewed Ashanti independence as something of a nuisance, a political reality that needlessly complicated their plans in West Africa. A few years prior, the British had sent surveying missions up the Volta River, which eventually reached Salaga, the ever-important center of trade between the Sahel and forest regions. The British had long sought to integrate Salaga directly into the Gold Coast colony, but couldn't since the best route for railways and roads passed through Ashantiman. British opinion of the Ashanti people as a whole had also exacerbated the declining relations. Old-fashioned colonial racism, combined with decades of experience as wartime enemies, resulted in the British developing very negative views of the Ashanti as a people. One colonial governor wrote of the Ashanti, Their proper characteristics are deceit, falsehood, and treachery. In fact, I don't think there's a single negative trait that they have not got. However, the fear that the French would support the Ashanti and turn Prempa into their Samori kept the British from invading it first. As a result, the British first tried to absorb the Ashanti diplomatically. In 1891, and again in 1894, the British extended offers for Prempa and the Ashanti to become a British protectorate, giving the Gold Coast Colonial Authority complete control over their foreign policy. Remember that while Prempa was guided by the principle of positive relations with the British, he also drew a hard line when it came to sacrificing his own nation's sovereignty. He refused. But in 1895, the last domino that protected the Ashanti from British invasion fell. That year, the British and French mutually pledged at a diplomatic conference that they would not aid each other's enemies in colonial wars. The British would cease their aid to Samori, while the French promised not to aid any of the British's potential adversaries, including the Ashanti. In the waning months of the year, British armies began assembling at the Pra River. Seeking a pretense for invasion. The British governor suddenly demanded that Prempa had to pay back all of Ashantiman's loans immediately, or face imminent invasion. Prempa, still desperate to avoid war, and aware that the question of debt collection was simply a pretext for invasion, rescinded his rejection of the protectorate offer. He stated that he would willingly submit to British domination if it meant the avoidance of war. However, the British colonial government rejected Prempa's offer as they were now set in their belief that Ashantiman should not just be subjugated, but destroyed and humiliated. If the British colonial authorities could thoroughly decimate Ashanti military forces and destroy their civic structures, then any future spirit of political or economic independence would no longer exist, and the British would truly rule in Ashantiman. What Prempa chose to do next was shocking he told his armies to stand down. Why Prempa ordered his armies to capitulate to the British before a shot had been fired is a matter of academic debate. I've seen it argued that he simply did not believe that the Ashanti army stood a realistic chance of resisting the oncoming British. I've also seen it argued that his commitment to pacifism simply made him very reluctant to order any sort of military action. But, to me, the explanation that makes the most sense is that Prempa was, in a way, outsmarting his British enemies. Prempa knew that the British governor wanted a bloody, destructive war to eradicate any spirit of Ashanti independence. But if he simply surrendered, then this war could not happen, and Ashanti autonomy had a greater chance of survival. So the Ashanti military laid down its arms, and the British forces advanced unimpeded. This conflict has gone down in history as the fourth Anglo-Ashanti war. But this classification seems erroneous. The vast majority of Omanhenes heeded Prempa's calls for surrender, and those few who chose to resist usually surrendered before more than a few shots had been fired. There was not a single combat death in the conflict, with the only casualties being a few Brits who caught disease on the walk to Kumasi. This is why I think it's wrong to call this event the 4th Anglo-Oshanti War. I mean... Who's even fighting a war here? After a barely month of unmolested marching to Komasi, the British entered the city and captured the Ashante Hene. Colonial soldiers arrested Prempa. One eyewitness to the arrest of the king was a young man named Yadabo, an apprentice who was in training to become a low-level royal bureaucrat. I was afraid and shed tears when King Prempe of blessed memory was taken away from us, his people by the soldiers. I saw this with my own eyes. The king, his mother, and others were called by name and surrounded to be taken away. I hid nearby with Akwasi Amawa, who was my own age, hailing from Kokoben as a cook to the king. What would become of us?" Once in British custody, the colonial administration leveled charges at Premba of violating the Treaty of Fulmena by refusing to pay Ashanti debts, failing to maintain clear roads, and failing to abolish the ritualized executions that the British called human sacrifice. In reality, Prempa had already abolished the death penalty a few years prior, and British financial records show that he had made strong progress in paying off British debts. It was true that this progress was slow, and that the roads of Ashantiman were in pretty bad state. But, well, the Ashanti kingdom had been entirely broken on the verge of failing altogether when Prempa had taken power. So, of course he wasn't able to fulfill these tasks immediately. For these reasons, most historians, and even much of the British public at the time, Accepted that the accusations towards Prempa were illegitimate, and functioned solely as an excuse for what came next. As punishment for his alleged crimes, Prempa was deported not only from Ashantiman, but from Ghana altogether. For the next 38 years, he would live in the Seychelles, a small British island colony in the Indian Ocean, isolated far away from his homeland. Meanwhile, the territory of Ashantiman was officially incorporated into the Gold Coast Colony the Ashanti nation had been removed from the map. Despite the sad ending to the conflict, Prempa's plan had, in a sense, worked. By refusing to resist the British with arms, Prempa did manage to spare Komasi from the worst of British wrath. Its armies, manpower, and weapons remained intact, albeit scattered, as did most of the towns and cities of the realm. However, since Prempa was deported and not killed, the Ashanti Manchamu refused to appoint a new Ashanti to the Golden Stool. After all, the Asantehene could only be elected if the old Asantehene had either died or been impeached. Prempa had done neither, so he remained officially Asantehene even in exile. Now under the guidance of an unwillingly absentee ruler, the Ashanti government fell into a state of paralysis, unable to deliver basic legal rulings or proclamations. In 1896, the 61-year-long British colonial rule of Ashantiman began. But this is not where Ashanti history ends. Even though the British had won the 4th Anglo-Ashanti War, they had failed in their goals of destroying the Ashanti, and most of all, they had failed in their goal of humiliating them. In the year of the turn of the century, 1900, a British colonial official will try to correct this failure, and in the process, kick off the 5th and final Anglo-Ashanti War. Join us next episode as a coalition led by a heroic noblewoman fights to preserve the dignity of her nation in the War of the Golden Stool. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com historyofafrica of Africa, providing the show with a rating or a view on whichever platform you listen on, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode, like all others, is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Penza, Tobias Tunglin, Dimitri, Emmanuel Saudi, Alexander Travis, BB Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Ose Kwame, Godfrey Sebalabie, Diz R.H., Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwakocha, Joe Maxwell, and Nkechi Nwabudike, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.